he adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let's seek the Lord's help. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you will bless us as we consider your word together, that you will help us to give proper attention to the words of life, and that your Holy Spirit would work life in our hearts through them. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I was saying this morning that uh, one of the privileges of getting to do a sermon that's not part of the series is you get to pick some of your favorites. Uh, we looked at my favorite story from the Old Testament this morning, and we're looking at my favorite book of the Bible, the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians is a remarkable letter. Uh, many suppose that it was written to be what was called a circular letter, a letter that was meant to go to the church in Ephesus and then spread and be read throughout a variety of churches. So differently than many other New Testament letters, the book of Ephesians isn't as much dealing with very particular issues in one particular congregation. Therefore, the book of Ephesians has a really great applicability for the Christian life as a whole. Some would argue that it's actually probably the best summary of the Christian faith that Paul gives, one meant to provide a foundation for many churches. It's a wonderful uh, letter to be looking at. And this start is a glorious beginning. And really, this section from verse 3 to verse 14 is just one long run-on sentence from the Apostle Paul. We break it up in our translations for understanding, but this is one grand idea. And so it's fitting to look at it in one message, this grand idea of the salvation of God and what God has accomplished for his people. And this long sentence, it has, if it will, three movements in it, or three peaks. It's actually quite Trinitarian. Paul begins speaking of the work of the Father in choosing us, then the work of the Son in redeeming us, and lastly, the work of the Spirit in sealing us. But the pinnacle of each of these movements, they each end on a note of praise, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace, and to, again, to the praise of his glory. We're considering the theme of praise in this long sentence from the Apostle Paul. And the big thought is simply that we've been chosen by the Father for praise. We've been redeemed by the Son for praise, and we've been sealed by the Spirit for praise. And I want us to see that praise is at the very core and heart of what it means to be a Christian. 
Praise is the highest end of your salvation. Praise is the great privilege of the Christian. I want us to consider this together as we first take a look at this Trinitarian work of the Father, Son, and Spirit on our behalf. Consider, take a look at verse 3 with me. We read, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul actually begins this thought with praise himself. He begins praising God for all these things he's going to list. Everything that which, which makes God praiseworthy. This is what we praise God for. He says, blessed be God. Now, this is a, here's a little tip when you're reading the New Testament. The word God in the New Testament almost always refers to the Father. There's one or two instances where it doesn't, but if you see the word God, that is usually a reference specifically to the Father. So we're considering the Father. Blessed be God who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The saints to whom this letter is written, and by us by extension, have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That is, by virtue of being united to Christ, of being made one with Christ, we get all these sort of blessings that come to us from Christ's position in heaven. It doesn't say we're given all physical blessings. That's going to wait till the age to come. But we're given all spiritual blessings in Christ. I'm sure you could think of many if you started trying to recount them. But I often find it helpful to consider, in both the shorter and larger catechism, uh, there's a question that asks what benefits there is for union with Christ in this life, right? Not just eternal life, but now. And it lists four of them. That in this life, we know the love of the Father. We know peace in our consciences. We have joy in the Holy Spirit and hope of eternal life. Those are amazing spiritual blessings that are ours now through the work of Jesus Christ. This in Christ phraseology pops up all this time in this letter. It's reminding us that everything good God gives to us comes by virtue of being united to Christ by faith. And here we see in verse four, the father's particular role in bringing us these spiritual blessings. We read that he chose us in him, that is again in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So God the Father chose his people before he even created the world. And he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. Not that we would live perfectly faultlessly, none of us does that, but that we would be holy and blameless because of Christ in his sight. He chose us in Christ, that by virtue of Christ's righteousness being given to us, he would look upon us as a holy people and a blameless people. And it says this is why God chose us. God wanted to see a holy, beautiful people. And he knew that was only going to happen in Christ. So God chose us to be holy in Christ. A Friday night I was at a wedding and uh, weddings are really beautiful things. And a great part of them is when you see uh, the father walking his bride down the aisle and you just see the pride on his face and the way he looks out at her in, his, in her beauty. And raising a daughter myself, you look forward to that day when you'll see her clothed in her beautiful white dress and you're, you'll be beaming and proud and just looking at her in that purity and beauty. And in a similar way, God the Father is unfolding this whole plan of redemption because he wants to see you and I clothed in the beautiful righteousness of Christ. It says this is why he chose that he would see us as holy and blameless. To be holy and blameless 
is amazing. I'm reminded of Colossians 1, one of my very favorite verses in scripture where we're told that God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That's how we're seen by God in Christ, holy and blameless. And as if to reinforce this thought, Paul continues in verse five that in love, God predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Okay, similar thought. He's saying God predestined us. And that's what he's talking about here. God's predestining or God's election of us. That's what that word choosing is getting at. If you choose someone for something, uh, you're electing them for something. And if it's a predestination, you are determining beforehand what is going to be that final outcome. And the election here is, again, unto holiness and blamelessness. And the predestination here is to be predestined to be adopted children of God. That's the destiny God was preparing for his people, to be his very children, holy and blameless children. And far from being um, a cold and distant and calculating doctrine, uh, the doctrine of election and predestination is a warm and familial doctrine. It's intimately tied to God's adoption of us. He chose us unto adoption. Um, I, I don't see in people I know that were adopted into a family, the fact that their parents chose them into their family doesn't cause them a doubt and concern, but rather to feel love and joy that this good family chose them. And so is God's choice of us. It's an expression of his fatherly heart of love. And we're told here that this election is according to his pleasure and will. That is, this is what God wanted. This is what God willed, that he would be bringing children into his family. I think we often forget that God didn't save a people because he had to. God wasn't under some sort of obligation to save. He doesn't have to save begrudgingly just because it's the right thing to do. It says it's his will and pleasure to save and redeem. I fear we sometimes think about God's salvation of us um, kind of like when you are going to maybe make yourself a lunch on a Sunday afternoon, you're maybe thinking of the tasty things you would like to make, but then you look in the fridge and you realize, oh, there's all these leftovers I have to use up. The mashed potatoes are about three days old. They're going to go bad soon. So I guess I'll do my duty as the good one in the family and I'll finish off the leftovers so others can enjoy some nice fresh food. We often think God is looking at us like, well, I guess I'll save these poor, pitiable, miserable creatures. It would probably be the right thing to do. It would probably be according to my duty. No, it says it is his heart. It is his will and pleasure to save. God saves you because he wants to. He desires your fellowship. He desires you, as we heard this morning, around the family table. This is the heart of the father delighting in his children. It's that heart we see in Zephaniah 3.17, where we're told that the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. God sings over his children with delight. The, and the culmination of this father's electing work unto holiness in Christ, unto adoption into his family, we're told in verse six, is to the end of praise, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. 
That is, he gives us this glorious free grace in Christ. That's why we call election a doctrine of grace, God's glorious free grace being given to such as us. And so God's election, it's not unto doubt, it's not unto fear, but it's unto delighting and praising him for his glorious grace. And let's keep that in mind as we continue beholding the works of God, as we consider the work of the Son. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So not just election, but redemption here through Christ's blood. When we're thinking about redemption, we're talking about being bought back. That's what it means to redeem, to buy something back. And we're naturally sold into slavery to sin. We're in bondage to it. But in Christ, he redeems us. That is, he buys us back from slavery to sin to belong to him in the freedom of the spirit. Now, the price he pays to redeem us, we often call a ransom. He pays a ransom, the price of his precious blood, for our redemption. And what that accomplishes, we see here, is the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Being freed from sin's enslaving power, being forgiven and no longer under the penalty of sin. Waiting for that day when we won't even be near the presence of of sin. And again, this is all of grace. We read it's in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. I love the word lavished. We're recipients of lavish grace. Lavished, lavished. Verse nine, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according again to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. So he's saying here that this redemption has been revealed to us through the preaching of the gospel. It's been proclaimed, and we've heard it. And the purpose of our redemption is not merely to be no longer enslaved and to be merely free. No, it's unto the end here of reconciliation being brought back into relationship with our maker, the God who made us. And there's hints here of the reconciliation, not that we'll have spiritually with God now, but the reconciliation that will occur in the age to come when all things, even this broken creation, will be reconciled to God. The picture in Revelation is not finally us floating off to heaven, but heaven coming down to earth. The reunification of the spiritual and the physical. Reconciliation of all things. Under Christ. Here we have um, what I've sometimes referred to as the three R's of salvation. Now, you might have heard of those three R's of education reading, writing, and arithmetic. And I don't really know how arithmetic got in there. I guess it's R arithmetic. Uh, but the three R's of education, I like to think of this as the three R's of salvation. Okay, this could be a good thing to teach your kids as redemption, ransom, and reconciliation. We've been redeemed, ransomed, and reconciled. We've been bought back from slavery to sin through the ransom Christ's blood paid to redeem us unto reconciliation with God. This is a beautiful redemption that Christ has worked in us. We're told in verse 11 that in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Again, we see this peak. The point of our redemption through Christ is to all culminate together into the praise of his glory. 
were not just chosen by the Father for praise, but redeemed by the Son for praise. To be for the praise of his glory. What's God's glory, you ask? It's everything glorious about him. Everything that makes God beautiful. Everything that makes God good. Everything that makes God great is his glory. And the particular glory here is the glory of Christ in redeeming us and ransoming us and reconciling us to God, to the end of praise. But also we see in our passage the work of the Spirit. Consider verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. So as if the gifts of redemption and reconciliation weren't enough, uh, we're told that we are included among the people of God. Us Gentiles included with those Jews to make one new people of God. We're included in Christ, but moreover, we're told here we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so here they're in this translation, they're taking one word and saying marked with a seal. The word is really sealed. Uh, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? Uh, this term pops up a few places in the New Testament. And um, I would posit that it means primarily two sort of different things. The first, and we see this in our text, is that it means that we have a deposit of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so if you put something in an envelope and sealed it, uh, the deposit in there is protected. The Spirit indwells his people, like that glory cloud filled the temple of old. And the Holy Spirit is called our deposit. That is the proof that God is going um, to give us a whole lot more than that in the age to come. Uh, boys and girls, I don't know how many of you get, are allowed to open a present on Christmas Eve. I know sometimes we would always ask my parents if we could open, we can just open one present on Christmas Eve. And that's kind of like the deposit of the Spirit because you get that one present and it's great, but it's telling you there's a lot more to come. If you just wait tomorrow, there's a lot more where that came from. And the Holy Spirit is the first and great gift of God to us. And really, eternity is like tomorrow. In the span of our life, tomorrow is Christmas Day, where we'll receive all the great gifts that God has for us, the inheritance he's been preparing since Jesus went to mark a place for us. But the Holy Spirit's the gift we have now, reminding us that there's still more to come. Secondly, the Spirit as a seal is like God's guarantee on us. Like a king seals something with a mark. This Holy Spirit is God's seal on us. I'm thinking of gifts again. This is kind of like a tracking number. You put a tracking number on a package so that you know it belongs to you and no matter where it goes, you can help ensure it'll get to its final destination. The Holy Spirit is the mark on God's people, ensuring that no matter what, God will ensure that they get to their final destination that he has called them to. The Holy Spirit is a seal. Unto our second redemption. If the first redemption was being freed from um, the penalty and the power of sin, this second redemption is the redemption of our bodies, the redemption of our physical selves and all our pains and sufferings in the age to come where God will redeem us from this broken, corrupt, hurting, fallen world of sin and misery to live with him in the new world to come. What a sentence, eh? 
the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit, each culminating with this call for us to be to the praise of God's glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. And by way of application, I just want us to step back and consider this idea of praise and the preeminence of praise in the Christian life. We were told in verse 6 that the Father chose us for praise. Verse 12, verse 14, that the triune work of God calls us to praise. But why praise? Why does God choose us and redeem us and seal us with seeming this reason being that we would be to praise? Why would praise play such a prominent role in God's purposes for us? Well, I want to posit two reasons. First is because praise is particularly glorifying to God. Praise is particularly glorifying to God. Praise you can think of as the summing up of all the blessings of God we've experienced and returning it to him. God's blessings to us demand a response from us. And the highest response is praise. You might think talk is cheap, actions speak. And yes, we do respond with lives of obedience and consecration to God. But in many ways, our thanks and praise is a more appropriate response. Consider that God's creation, the sun, moon, and stars, they perfectly obey God. They perfectly obey their creator's commands for them to give us times and seasons and years. But they don't say thank you. They don't give God praise. We can give and render the thanks that the created world can't give to God. Our praise is particularly glorifying to God. It's our duty to give him the praise that creation is called to give. And vocal praise is even more particularly a duty of the redeemed, not just as creatures, but as redeemed people. Because you see, unbelievers can in many ways mirror our morals. Sometimes they show us up in acts of kindness and deeds that are good done to others. But they never return thanks to God. No matter how morally they strive to live, they never acknowledge their creator, the one who made them. And so the, the distinctive mark of the Christian, above all other marks, is that the Christian praises the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Praise, as it were, gathers all the blessings of the natural, the blessings of the spiritual, and funnels them and focuses them into a sharp point that pierces heaven itself. Praise is particularly glorifying to God. That's the first thing we can say about praise. The second is that praise itself is our joy and our privilege. Praise isn't just glorifying to God, but it's good for us. There's a very profound passage from C.S. Lewis when he writes in the Reflections on the Psalms. And I want us to just consider this, and I'll try to explain it a bit, because uh, this was revolutionary when I first understood this. Lewis writes... I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Okay, he says praise doesn't just express the joy we experience in things, but the praise itself is the completion of that enjoyment. It's its end. He continues, it's not out of mere compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. 
The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. So I remember when I was um, dating my now wife, Julie, and you're waiting for that moment when it's right for the first time to say, I love you. And there's something that's so joy-filling and satisfying about that because the expression of it, you've been feeling that you love one another, but when it's expressed, it's able to gather up all those experiences into one point and it helps complete and bring the joy to fullness. Again, Lewis continues, it's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Right? Don't you feel that frustration when you experience, uh, you go out for lunch and have an amazing meal. You want to tell someone, oh man, you've got to have the this at this restaurant. Or you see an incredible movie and you want to talk about it. Uh, we finished the uh, Rings of Power finale and I messaged my family right after. I'm like, brothers, sisters, uh, when, as soon as you've watched it, come talk to me. I want to talk about it. I want to talk about how good it was. And we delight to praise these things uh, that we have enjoyed and to share them with others. Because the praise is actually the culmination and completion of the enjoyment itself. It's like uh, the swallow after the chew. It just, it leaves you with that satisfying feeling. Again, Lewis continues, the catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. And so this led John Piper to say that you could really argue that we glorify God by enjoying him forever. Praise is expressed joy-filled reflection. Praise is the expression of a joy-filled reflection. And the more joy you have in something, the more you will naturally praise the object of your joy. And if you have a lack of praise, it's stemming from a lack of joy. And if you have a lack of joy, especially in God, in light of everything we've seen, then that's either because we have a lack of knowledge or a lack of reflection. That is, a lack of knowledge means if you don't know what God has done for you, you're not going to rejoice and delight in it. So we're people that delight to share what God has done. But often for us, it's a problem of reflection. Our hearts and minds quickly grow dull. We lose the wonder of the cross. We lose the wonder of God's redemption. And we just end up living life ho-hum in the drab and ordinary, listless, going to and fro. The issue for us is often one of forgetfulness, a lack of reflection and meditation. We need to remedy this. Um, if you find in your marriage that perhaps you're just each spouse is going your own way and you feel like perhaps you're taking your spouse for granted and uh, just kind of living as ships in the night, a great, um, a great practice to do is, is if really, if you just stop and spend a few minutes just really reflecting on everything good that your spouse has done for you over the years, the fact that they chose to marry you, to be with you, everything, you will start feeling love welling up in your heart you will start feeling joy welling up in your heart as you consider all this. But it just takes a few minutes to stop and really, again, remind yourself and think, wow, this person has loved me and they've loved me so well. It chases away your selfishness and entitlement. And in this passage, we have a rubric of, here's a way that we can learn to better reflect on the goodness and blessing of God to us. 
to reflect and just spend a few minutes thinking about how the Father has chosen us to be his children, how the Son has purchased and redeemed us at the price of his own blood, and how the Holy Spirit has filled us and um, is preserving us unto our final end. We consider the wonders of God's grace, the depths of his love. And if we are to be a joyful people and a praising people, we need to be frequently warming our hearts by the fires of meditation. And so to go first to God's word, to consider God, to really think on who he is and what he's done. Being silent before him, acknowledging, as the psalm says, being still and just knowing that he is God and that the God is our God. To have our hearts and affections lifted as high towards heaven as possible. And we ultimately, we want to have our lives be one of continual praise. We read earlier in Psalm 145, verse 2, where the psalmist says, Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Or in Psalm 34, 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. It is good to learn to be people of praise. For the mind that is constantly filled with praise and thankfulness to God, that's a mind that's protected and shielded from self-absorption because praise forces you to lift your eyes off of yourself. Constant praise is an antidote to anxiety and despair because praise lifts your eyes off of your circumstances. Praise frees us from discontented grumbling because praise reminds us of grace. And praise lifts us out of that ho-hum, ordinary mundaneness in, in life because in praise, we see and delight in the beauty and goodness of our great and awesome God. God has called us to be people of praise because it glorifies him and it completes our joy in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are so praiseworthy and we only catch the tiniest of glimpses of just how worthy you are. We do ask that you would open our eyes to a greater glimpse. Open our eyes this week to a greater glimpse of your love for us, the grace that you've shown us in Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit. Attune our hearts to sing your praise. Ignite our affections. Revive our minds and our thoughts to have greater and bigger thoughts of God that we would lift our eyes off ourselves and our circumstances and look to you, the great God, the awesome God, the God who works wonders. All for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.